Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Chorus, partnering with the Dementia Care Network to present Alzheimer's stories on October 27th, 28th and 29th in Jackson, Cleveland and Tupelo. More information at singanything.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Karen Brown. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, is housing discrimination a statewide problem in Mississippi? How allegations have turned into a full-on investigation. Then, get this year's influenza outlook from health officials. They say it's time to get your flu shot. And some Mississippi children are in crisis. A new report says how, why, and who can help. That's really a huge problem for a state with the highest African-American population in the nation. And we know that the future of Mississippi as a whole depends on the success of all of our young people. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. National housing officials are investigating real estate practices in Mississippi, looking for evidence of discrimination. This after an investigation revealed differences in treatment of white and black home buyers around the capital city. The National Fair Housing Alliance, or NFHA, filed a federal housing discrimination complaint with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development against the agents and companies with the group known as REMAX Alliance and the Lee Garland and Rita Jensen team. Under the terms of the settlement, the groups will pay $46,000 to NFHA, participate in fair housing trainings, and display fair housing signs in its offices. The settlement agreement will be monitored by HUD's Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. Robert Prater is administrator for the Mississippi Real Estate Commission and Appraisal Board. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the group has yet to get the full details of the case. As far as the commission is concerned, any time there is something like this that happens, uh, we'll wait until we can get the actual documentation, in this case from the National Fair Housing Alliance, to see what, what the outcome was, what their findings were, and then we'll just review that to see if, in fact, there was a violation of state statute or the MREC Uh, administrative rules, and then we'll make a decision whether to go forward with an investigation. Well, in terms of training for realtors? The guidelines are primarily statutory uh, in that there's uh, three types of education. There's a pre-licensing education, which has to be done by both salespersons and real estate brokers, which requires fair housing, topics on fair housing, uh, such as the topic that the individual you were mentioning, the group you were mentioning, were sanctioned for was steering primarily. Then we have post-licensing education, which occurs with a real estate licensee within the first year of their licensure, and that also requires both for salespersons and brokers to have a portion of their 
course, which is 30 hours in length, to be on fair housing. And then there's continuing education, and there are all types of courses there, which some of them are fair housing courses, and the Real Estate Commission does not require that fair housing be part of the continuing education, just the pre-licensing and post-licensing. What is Mississippi law regarding fair housing? We do have some statutes which require that all licensees treat individuals honestly and fairly. Uh, We have various and sundry laws dealing with agency relationships and confidentialities, and it's very possible that in many of these fair housing disputes and complaints that they may have violated uh, one of our statutes. Your thoughts on a complaint being registered in Mississippi and a fine being levied? It's a common occurrence in the state for there to be fair housing complaints filed with the United States Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development. And on several occasions, we've had the Department of Housing and Urban Development out of Atlanta. We've had individuals from that office in our office talking with them about particular brokerage firms and some of the uh, actions of those brokerage firms. But any time a real estate professional is involved in steering or any type of discriminatory process, it's going to be a situation where any number of federal and state agencies may become involved in it. And and it's certainly not proper to do that. Well, we really appreciate you speaking with us about this important issue and giving us some insight. Well, as I'm more than happy to do so, and I will point out that we have had contacts from several federal and uh, federal agencies. And, you know, this is an ongoing thing in our state and particularly in the Jackson area right now. And I think that uh, the National Fair Housing Alliance would tell you that they still have several uh, situations in process right now that they're working on in this particular area. Thank you for your time. One analysis lists Jackson as the third most segregated city in the U.S. This leaves some to question if fairness is a part of training for real estate agents. Andrea Dietrich is an instructor with the Mississippi Association of Realtors. She tells our Desiree Frazier they teach students to sell property, not people. They need to talk about property and not people. And what does that mean? That means we sell property. We don't sell people. So If they want to talk about property, we're happy to talk about that. If we want to talk about people, that's not what we talk about. That's not what we do. We're not selling people. We are selling property. What does the course teach? What do they learn about fair housing that's important for them to know? They learn about the protected classes, uh, which is race, color, religion, sex, handicap, familiar status, and national origin. That is the federal protected classes. But as if you're a realtor, We adhere to a code of ethics that adds sexual orientation and gender identity to those protected classes. But if you treat everybody right, you don't even have to worry about it. And so when you're teaching this class, what are the points that you stress? Is there anything that you alert them to that could potentially be uh, a pitfall? Yes. I tell them that we are given this frame and we can't help what frame we have. This is not who we are. This is what we see. Sometimes we are uh, uncomfortable because people are different than us. But if we would just talk to them and find out who they really are, then we'll find out 
they're not different than us at all. We're all the same. We all have equal value. We're all the same. What are some of the challenges that you face in teaching this material, or do you? Oh, I no, I don't have any challenges um, because that's the way I that's the way I live, and that's the way most of our agents. I mean, all of my students are in agreement with me. And so, do you tell people about the Fair Housing Alliance, and you really want to avoid being fined for anything involving that? Thank you for making yourself available. All right. Thank you. In a statement, Lee Garwin with REMAX Alliance said neither the company nor its agents support discrimination. He said they were dumbfounded by the complaint, but agreed it was in the best interest of all parties to settle the dispute. Garwin adds no formal charges were levied against the company. Coming up, get this year's influenza outlook from health officials. They say it's time to get your flu shot. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Wills Couture, the IT guy around here, and I know firsthand that everybody needs a little help from time to time dealing with the fast-paced world of technology. Wilts, I couldn't agree more. I'm Jeremy Thompson, the computer doctor and phone surgeon. As the weekly host of Everyday Tech, it's our job to make it easier for you to keep up with the latest, greatest, or smallest technologies. The way it works is... You give us a call, and we'll give you some answers. Hopefully Hopefully the the right right ones. That's Everyday Tech, this morning at 10 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The official start of flu season 2017 has arrived in Mississippi. According to the Centers for Disease Control, peak flu season is typically between November and March. Some parts of the country are already reporting cases of the flu. Public health officials are urging parents in Mississippi to get their children vaccinated against the flu. Dr. Richard Webby is a member of the Infectious Disease Department at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. He tells us when they determine the prognosis for each year's flu season. Uh, The decision about what goes in that vaccine is typically six to seven months before that vaccine's in use. So there are two critical meetings for that. Um, One, when we're deciding what goes into the strains for the Northern Hemisphere vaccine, that meeting is in February of every year, and of course the vaccine starts to roll out in about October. Um, And likewise, for the Southern Hemisphere, we meet and decide in September for their upcoming vaccine campaigns, which typically start more about April. How do you know in advance what strains will be prevalent during the upcoming season? So that's really the tricky thing about this whole process. We've we've got to gaze into the sort of the crystal ball a little bit, but but it's not sort of a complete guess. So you know, flu viruses do change, but you know, quite often we can see that change coming. So the the World Health Organization has a laboratory network of over 140 laboratories around the world that collect specimens during their flu seasons. And these specimens are essentially isolated. Viruses are isolated from those specimens, and those viruses are characterized in terms of what they look like genetically, what they look like to the host immune system. Is it rare that a different strain would introduce itself during a season? Have we seen it in the past? Absolutely. You know, so going back to this whole process of how long it how long in advance we have to pick the strains, there is this period of six 
seven months, you know, and there have been cases where the virus has changed in that time period. At least one of the components of the vaccine has changed in that period between selecting the vaccine and its actual use. You know, and in those cases, often that does lead to a reduced efficacy of vaccine. But having said that, typically that only occurs with one of the components of the vaccine. So, you know, there are still either two or three components that are typically well matched. Are some strains more dangerous than others? We have you know, essentially three different varieties. We have one we call influenza B. We have one we call an H1 influenza A virus and one we call it an H3 influenza A virus. And, and typically, you know, although it can change a little, what we tend to see is when we have a major H3 season, we tend to see a little bit more disease. Why is the flu or can the flu be deadly for someone with a compromised immune system? So a lot of these people with underlying conditions, it's not just flu that they're more susceptible to. Um, you know, they often case it is their immune system, which is obviously what our body uses to fight off these invading organisms. You know, often in, in these cases, their immune systems aren't, you know, they aren't sort of firing on all eight cylinders, if, if you like. So, you know, there is a little bit of a delayed, perhaps, response by the immune system, just not quite as strong as you had hoped. So the virus, you know, gets a little bit more of a hold within that person's body and, you know, and can cause more severe disease. You know, often cases what we see with influenza, it's not necessarily the virus itself that causes a lot of disease. Sometimes what follows up from the primary flu infection is a, what we call a secondary bacterial infection. And again, those individuals with underlying conditions are more susceptible to those bacterial infections following on from the flu infection. I've even heard it where someone says, I didn't get the flu shot this year because last year when I got it, I got the flu. Obviously, I've heard that one many times as well. So there's a, a couple of, I think, things you've got to keep in mind with statements like that. You know, one, it's possible that those people actually did get the flu. Yeah, so the influenza vaccine, you know, although we know it, we know it works, we have a history of its use, you know, it's not 100% effective in everybody. And certainly in, in some seasons and in some parts of the population, it, it may even get down to 50% or sometimes even less you know, effectiveness. So there is a possibility that those people did get the flu. The other part of that statement, of course, is without a, a real sort of medical diagnosis, sometimes it's hard to tell whether you've actually had the flu or whether you've had some other virus or bacterial infection. You know, of course, the influenza vaccine protects you from the flu, but doesn't protect you from some of these other viruses that cause common colds with very similar symptoms. Dr. Richard Webby is a member of the World Health Organization's team responsible for vaccine composition. He and his team work at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. Dr. Webby, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Vaccines are now available at every county health department in the state. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall where the shot is available locally. You know, the flu shot is going to be, or the flu vaccine, is going to be your best protection from infection each year. But not only does it help uh, prevent infection, 
if you do happen to get infected with with flu after you've been vaccinated, it lessens the risk of complications. Uh, folks get over it better. Uh, it decreases the risk of hospitalizations. It decreases the risk of severe complications that can occur as a result of influenza infection, and it can decrease the risk of deaths. Is there anybody uh, for whom it is specifically not recommended? It is not recommended for children under the age of six months. How do we know that the flu vaccine is safe? The flu vaccine has been around for a very long time, and there have been millions of doses uh, given not only each year, but over the past many, many years. And so the flu vaccine has, has proved itself to be a very safe and effective uh, vaccination to prevent infection and complications. There are some people who may have severe egg allergies for whom uh, certain types of flu vaccine are not indicated, but there is one that is available for individuals who do have severe egg allergies. There are some other potential allergies that can occur. Certainly there are some localized reactions that can occur, but uh, severe complications as a result of flu vaccination is just not something that we've seen. Is an appointment necessary for that sort of thing, or do, do uh, they just find their county health office? Yeah, just their county health department. And if they want to make sure that their county health department is giving shots that day and, is, and has uh, the vaccine available, uh, the best way to do is just call your county health department before you go. What's the cost involved in that? For children under the age of 18, it's a $10 administration fee if they're not insured. For us adults, uh, contact our general practitioner or stop by the local pharmacy. Right, exactly. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist. Dr. Byers, thank you very much for this information. Thank you. Coming up, some Mississippi children are in crisis. A new report says how, why, and who can help. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy, live blue. It's good to be blue. If if you're going to get two guys to do a TV show about Mississippi, two more enthusiastic cheerleaders than you and me. I'm an artist. I like to paint. I'm a restaurateur. I like to eat. That's what we're about. This week, we travel to the Mississippi Gulf Coast and attempt shrimping. We cook at my home, and Wyatt paints a rocket booster near the Stennis Space Center. It's a blast. Join us. Join Robert St. John and Wyatt Waters in Pallet to Pallet, Thursday at 7 on MPB Television. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Some Mississippi children are unable to achieve their full potential. That's according to a new report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. The 2017 Race for Results report shows children of color, particularly African-American children, and kids in immigrant families in Mississippi face persistent barriers like low birth weight, low reading scores, and joblessness. They say the figures show as crisis among those children. In addition to poverty, the report points to risks to healthy child development, such as limited educational opportunities and family separation. The conditions are attributed to policies that limit resources and threaten to rip families apart. Heather Hanna is a research professor at Mississippi State University. As co-director of the Mississippi Kids Count, she tells MPB's Ezra Wall more on what they found. Our outcomes for African-American children were considerably lower than for white children 
and that was within the state and when you compare us to other states as well. And that's really a huge problem for a state with the highest African-American population in the nation. And we know that the future of Mississippi as a whole depends on the success and the development of all of our young people. So I think these outcomes are probably not a huge surprise to a lot of people. But what I think listeners need to know is that Mississippi is not destined to be last in outcomes for any group of children and that there are evidence-based policies that we can enact to improve outcomes. So we hear various reports throughout the year that talk about educational outcomes or even among adults like employment outcomes or something like that. But this report, the 2017 Race for Results report, shows that it starts really right from from the second we're born with African-American children being less likely to be born at normal birth weight compared to white children. In order to fix some of these disparities, where do we need to start? It's so important that we screen, that we have developmental screenings for children ages 0 to 6. And that's something that can begin in the pediatrician's office and really should happen into uh, school to make sure that children are developing and meeting those milestones on time. What do researchers know about what causes these disparities? One of the things that came out of this report is that African-American children are much more likely to live in a high-poverty area of the state. And we know that there are so many different resources available to children and families who live in high-resource areas. It's good schools, it's plentiful jobs, public transportation, and really a rich diversity of thought and experiences. And these types of resources and experiences, they stick to people, not just individuals, but to groups. And the resources that stick to one group or another really benefit the whole community. And so we want to make sure that all children and all groups within the state are having those types of experiences. 14% of African-American children are likely to score at or above proficient in reading in the fourth grade. That, that seems like an astronomically low number. What's going to move the needle from 14% up? I think a lot of times we look at individual level solutions to structural problems. And this is a structural issue. It has to do with the type of environment that you grow up in, whether you have access to preschool, whether you are attending preschool, whether you're getting all the inputs that you need to get you to that place in fourth grade where you score at a proficient level. So what are some of those solutions that are working elsewhere that we are not doing here in Mississippi? There are states that are excelling, and some of them may be, they're not necessarily all high-resource areas. I think there are policies that can be adopted even in states that don't have as many resources that are still extremely effective. The Mississippi Kids Count organization puts out a fact book annually, and we do make policy recommendations. These are policies that have been shown in other states to be effective in improving outcomes for children and can absolutely be effective in Mississippi. One of the things in terms of education that we've recommended was increasing the number of pre-K collaborative classrooms so that we have one at a minimum per school district over, say, the next five years 
beginning with the geographical areas where the state's most disenfranchised children live. And I would say in terms of economic well-being, I think having a refundable state-earned income tax credit has certainly been shown to reduce family poverty. And those are available in our fat books, which are on our website, Mississippi Kids Count. How do you address concerns like this with legislators who automatically just see dollar signs when you start talking about stuff like that? Yes. Investments in children cost money, absolutely, but the return on investment, and these are policies that have been shown to have a high return on investment. We certainly don't want to sink valuable dollars um, into programs and activities that are not going to yield positive results. And so that's why when we look to other states, we try and see what's working and what also brings a good return on investment. We've been speaking with Heather Hanna, who's a research professor at Mississippi State University and is the co-director of the Mississippi Kids Count. Dr. Hanna, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Ezra. Coming up at 9 o'clock, Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. And join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.